morning. Are you ready to start a study in Ecclesiastes? I am. It's, uh, it's going to be a good one. This is one of those times where you stop and you, and you look at the Old Testament and, and you think, man, what in the world does this have to do uh, with me? Yet, as you dig into it, you'll start to see that it has so much application for us even today. And one of the beautiful yet sobering truths that you see all throughout Scripture, but not just Scripture, in just human history, is that man is basically the same. We might find different ways to live our lives. We might have new technology. We might have other things to occupy our time. But we are the common denominator. We are the same. There is nothing new in the heart of man. And so when you look at this book of Ecclesiastes, you see somebody who's searching for purpose and meaning in life. Um, and it's no different than the exact same thing that we do today. And so what we'll see here in the book of Ecclesiastes is, is this big experiment. Um, and the, the book was written by King Solomon. King Solomon was the son of David. He was actually uh, a really interesting little thing. Remember, he was, he was one of the wisest people that's ever lived. We think that he's probably the second wisest person to ever live because Jesus Christ uh, beats him out on that one. Uh, but Solomon can get second place. But he is very, very wise. He's an incredibly knowledgeable man. But not only that, his unique position as a rich king gave him the opportunity to test all sorts of things. And you and I, we might want to say, okay, I'm going to try my hand at this or that uh, and see if I can get some satisfaction or fulfillment. But there's great limitations to the things that we can do because most of us have to go to work, right? Most of us have different obligations. But here you have a guy who says, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to take some time off uh, from this and I'm going to go do this. And I'm going to apply myself to this. And he was able to apply himself to all of these different things in this big pursuit, this big pursuit asking the question, what is the point? And his question, that question, is no different than the question we ask ourselves today. In all of this, what is the point? And so we're going to be focusing in on this, and hopefully we can glean through the experiments uh, and the existential uh, you know, application here that there is absolutely something to be seen, that there is no ultimate fulfillment in this life. It does not matter what it is, there is no ultimate fulfillment in this life. But that doesn't mean there is no ultimate fulfillment to be had. We've got, to, we've got to place that appropriately. So we'll look at that today. But the major doctrine that I want to defend this morning is that temporary satisfaction is overshadowed by our longing for eternal hope and meaning. Temporary satisfaction is overshadowed by our longing for eternal hope and meaning. It doesn't matter how much we enjoy things today. It's never enough. It's interesting because you sometimes you think about pain, you think about suffering. And the further you remove from your pain and suffering, say you break a, break a bone or, or you have a, a, a harmful and, and painful relationship, but the further you remove from that, the easier it is to deal with that. Why? Because the sensation grows duller and duller over time. Well, what the other truth that can be applied is, is even in great satisfaction and enjoyment, it grows duller and duller over time. So you've got to do it again and again and whatever it was. Hey, you can't just go on vacation once, can you? You can't just go on a camping trip once and be, oh, that was, I did that. Did that. I can't just have a nice dinner with my wife once and say, I did that. I took you on a date. 
There's lots of things that you can't just do once and say, call it good and done. Why? Because it's the, it's the, it's the insatiable sense in which we just can't be satisfied here and now. There is no satisfaction that we will experience here that lasts so long that we don't have to long for it again because every satisfaction that we get here is temporary. But that points to something which is, which is eternal and there is a longing for a more staying and more satisfying, fulfilling something. And so we're all looking for that. We're all looking for that. And so today we're going to take a look at this. But I want to put on the screen the first question before we get into our text. When do you feel life is meaningless? Have you ever felt that life is meaningless? I, I certainly have. Uh, it's very easy to sometimes just, just wake up in the morning and just think, what is even the point? Uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, you know, and I don't necessarily recommend it, um, <laughs> in a church setting here, here I am recommending a movie. Maybe you go home and watch it and you think, wow. Have you ever watched a movie and then you recommend it to your parents and then they watch it and they ask, what was that? And you're like, oh yeah, I forgot. But, but the, the, the movie Office Space he just, he just trips out, right? He gets hypnotized, and then he shows up to work. He's like, I don't really care. I think I'm going to take my cubicle apart so I can have a view. And everyone is like, what has gotten into this guy? But he's literally, he's like, just nothing really matters. They said, what do you do? Well, basically, I get to work, and I veg out from 9 to 11 o'clock, and then I just stare at my screen from 12 to 1. And he just tell them all this stuff, and they're like, what? But there's a sense in which you, you kind of look at life sometimes, and you say, what is the point? Why should I get up in the morning? Why should I try hard at work? Why should I do this or that? In the end, it doesn't matter. But there is meaning to be found. And so we have to answer this question today. So if you will, get your scripture out. Turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. It, it, if you open right, basically, stand with me. If you, if you open your Bible, almost split right in the middle. It's right after Proverbs. It's in the wisdom literature section. And it's Ecclesiastes 1 is where we're going to start today. And we're going to actually deal with all of chapter 1. Uh, and so we will start in verse 1 and we'll go all the way through verse 18 of chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes. And this is what the word says. The word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuits. The wind returns, all streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. There is a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has already been done in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. 
I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom, to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also was but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So you see here King Solomon, the son of David, the wisest guy to ever live, save for Jesus Christ. He's looking at this and he says, I've done it all and there's nothing new that can be done and I've done it all and what I've found is that there is no meaning in any of this. The first part of this uh, chapter deals with time in the world. Um, and you see these cycles, the sun rises, the sun goes down, uh, the wind blows. You see all of these different things, that, these images in nature that we see that are kind of, they're doing their thing. We see that, right? Um, as you get older and older, uh, time seems to, to pass quicker and quicker, right? When you're a kid and say you're, you're 10 years old and a year is one-tenth of your life, it seems like it's a very long time. But as you get older and older, one year, the fraction becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of your overall life, and it seems to go quick. And you see winter come, then it's gone, spring, and then summer, and then fall, and you're is it winter already again? It just goes so quickly. And we see these cycles, we see this rhythm, we see the stars, we see the moon, we see all of the things of nature doing their things. No one's paying attention to them. No one's managing them. They're just doing their things. And we are sitting here saying, I was born, I'm living this life, and I will die. And maybe I might be remembered, but more than likely, I won't be. If you get into genealogy and you start to look at your family, it, you won't have to go very far back before you start to find relatives you don't know anything about. You might know your grandparents, likely. Very, very, very unlikely that you know your great, great, great grandparents. Probably don't know much about them at all. And you today, if you have children, put this in perspective from the other direction, your children's children will know you, but they won't know you that well. Then their children probably won't ever know you. Maybe they will, but probably not. But then their children, good luck. Good luck. So everything that you're doing at some point in time, if there is no eternal perspective, if there is no life after this, all of it is meaningless. All of it will be washed away. Very few people who are born will ever truly be remembered. And if you hold to this materialistic mindset that there is no purpose in any of this, all of this is just a product of a cosmic accident, and here we are, and we, like the universe, just crawl on our belly as far as we can until we die, and the universe, too, dies a heat death, and nothing is remembered. It's very easy to fall into this depressed state and just feel like, what is the point in any of this? But do you know that that's where a lot of people live today? That's where a lot of people wake up. They wake up to that feeling. Well, King Solomon, this wasn't lost on him either. But I want to take us take a look at three places this morning. We'll make three stops. The first is how is vanity produced? I want to move on to how is hope produced? And then I want to end with a dash of hope drives out vanity. And this idea of vanity, you see it all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Around 40 times it's mentioned. But the word vanity in Hebrew, habel, is to, is to refer to a, a concrete image of, of a mist or a vapor. 
uh, or a breath. Have you ever tried to catch a vapor? <laughs> Have you ever tried to, you know, wrap your arms around a breath? This the basic idea is, 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 is chasing after the wind. So he says, vanity of vanities. He starts out, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. This is interesting because he's basically saying, from my position, I am gathering the, the, the Ecclesiastes. You get this idea, ecclesia, the church or the gathered ones. He's saying, gather around, listen. I'm the professor, I'm the preacher. Let me teach you something. Premise one, vanity of vanities. If you didn't catch it, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He just lays it out right away, saying that all of this is but a vapor. All of this is but a chasing after the wind. All of this is but a breath. But what I want to see here is that this is absolutely true if you don't see the end of the book. So we're going to look at the beginning, and if you just stopped here, if you read chapter 1, you could close it and say, well, that was really encouraging. But he doesn't stop there. Luckily, the course keeps going. The professor has more to say. But if you stop at, at one, lecture one, you're probably going to give up. But what we've got to do is we've got to unpack what's in here. And then I want to I tease out some, some, some concepts that I think are all throughout Scripture, but also something that we can relate to in everyday life. And I want to put it up on the screen, and I want to unpack this idea is that vanity is the stuff of disappointment and the frustration of misplaced hope. Vanity is the stuff of disappointment and the frustration of misplaced hope. The whole concept is, is when we say something is meaningless, is what we're really saying is it's inconsequential. It has no real consequences of whether or not it happens. It doesn't matter. There are no consequences for it in the, in the end. It's inconsequential. It's insignificant. Um, and Solomon takes this position um, as he tells the congregation that everything under the sun is meaningless. He says that it has no consequence at the end of life. That's what he starts out saying. He says all of this stuff is repeating. There's nothing new. There's nothing that you can do. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. He's like, oh, okay, you can go to wisdom. You can take a look at wisdom because that's what the second part of this chapter looks at is this idea of wisdom. Well, maybe there's something there to be found there. And he says, okay, well, I applied myself. I learned a whole lot. I'm wise. I'm wiser than anyone who's ever ruled Jerusalem before me. And, and, and what, you know what I found? He says uh, at the end in verse 18, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. There's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth in which you, you protect your children from certain information, don't you? Because there's a certain amount of truth that ignorance is bliss. Why take their innocence? Why try to tell them all of the hard and evil things in life? Why not protect some of that? But as you live, you start to gain knowledge. And the more knowledge you gain, you start to look at it and you say, this stresses me out or this makes me sad. When you even study church history, you can start to look at it and you can say, man, now that I know how this denomination is split off of this one and this one and this one, you start, to, you start to see the fog clear, and it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird. Let me just tell you, the Baptists haven't been around for all of history. The Apostle Paul wasn't a Baptist. They didn't come around until the 1600s. Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't really mean much. But the point is, is that as you gain knowledge, you start to look at things, and you start to put things in perspective. There's certain things that can just bring you great sorrow in knowing them. But there's also certain things that can that obviously bring great joy in knowing them. 
But there is this challenge that he leaves you with. He doesn't give you the positive. He leaves you with the negative. He says, with knowledge comes sorrow. So what do you do with that? I think it's important for us to look at this concept of vanity and what it is and what's producing it. Um, this, this is an interesting thing because what, what we see here, um, he goes through all these things. He says, all things are full of weirdness and man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, not the ear, uh, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been and what will be, what has been done is what will be done and there is nothing new under the sun. Here's the thing, think about this. Everything that you will ever accomplish in your life has to be seen in light of this truth that there has to be something beyond any one of those individual accomplishments. Because vanity is produced when we are disappointed. When we start to set up these expectations, and so you can start to think of, of any, any different thing. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's your um, family. Maybe you're thinking, if only I would get married. If only I could find a spouse and they would complete me. If I could find true love, then that's, that would be the answer to my problems. And then what happens when you actually find true love? Um, I, 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 don't, I don't think that it's any mystery on anyone who's actually been in a relationship. What you find out is that that person is also a sinner. And they're also annoying sometimes. <laughs> and they will let you know that you're annoying sometimes. And so then your hope is crushed. Vanity of vanities, this love. Because what you're looking for is you're looking for something ultimate in that. And you're saying that this is the end. If only I had this, I would be satisfied. But even when we get it, we feel unsatisfied. There's not a complete fulfillment in it. Well, okay, that's family. Maybe you'd be built on to family as well and said, well, if I get kids, if we just had kids, maybe we wouldn't be at odds, you know, wouldn't be fighting all the time if we just had a kid in the house. Yeah, that doesn't work either. And sometimes people make an idol out of their children and they say, if I lost my kids, life wouldn't be worth living. And sometimes when kids leave the home, you don't have a marriage left because all the time that the kids were at home, you neglected each other and all you did was focus everything on your kids. And you find even then when they leave or they go through their teenage years and they really don't want to hang out with you, you feel a deep dissatisfaction. You feel hurt. You feel pain. You feel, I'm not fulfilled in this. In this, I hope for fulfillment, but I don't see it. Or maybe it's career. And you think, well, if I would just get a job. How many of you remember earlier on in your career or in your life, and you thought, how do these people make $30,000 a year? Right? You think, you think that kind of money is big money. And then you get there, and then you're like, this isn't that much money. I can remember thinking, I'm not going to talk too much about figures, but I can remember thinking certain numbers were like, if I only made that, I would be happy. And then when I hit that, I was like, ah, this isn't really that much money. So oh, well, if I break over this line, you know, in our society, if I can get over this line, man, you're rolling in it. You get over that line, and you're like, yeah, well, it still disappears just as quick. And you, you never feel complete satisfaction in that. Well, you think, well, maybe if I went to school and I got some letters after my name. And then you do that. And then you celebrate and it's fun. It's great. But then you still feel like you. And actually, beyond that, you still feel like even worse a little. 
there's this thing called imposter syndrome. And it's when you graduate college, and maybe you get your master's degree, and you're supposed to be an expert on something now, but really, you don't know that much, and you're just hoping that no one blows your cover. And you go to work every day, and you think, man, I hope no one finds out. You're still paying me that much for this? <sighs> hope this lasts another month. Because as soon as you find out that I don't really know that much, you might need to find somebody else, right? That's, that's the imposter syndrome. We all feel it. But here's the secret. It's, it's true for everybody. There isn't actually a person who's got it all together. Um, and then when you figure that out, you can get some confidence. Uh, I, I sit in some pretty intense meetings sometimes, and, and I, I'm able to look across the table and go, you don't really know how this works either, do you? Cool. Let's figure it out. Let's figure it out. We can do this. Because none of us have it all nailed down. But let's start there. We don't have to fake it. <laughs> we'll figure this out together. But the point is, is even in that, maybe you get that promotion, and when you get that promotion, you feel like this is it. That's, that's it? No parade? This is it? And every step of your life, you feel more and more like this isn't filling that hole. More and more, you feel like there's got to be something else. And I can tell you the same thing from ministry. I can remember dreaming about being able to preach or being able to serve in the church, and then you actually get into it, and you actually do it, and then you're like, this is it? I thought it would just be reading books all the time. And then there's more to it. Right, Johnny? There's more to it. But what we have to look at is if we're looking at any one of these things as our ultimate hope, that's when we're frustrated. That's when we feel let down. Because vanity is the stuff of disappointment and the frustration of misplaced hope. And I think Solomon was right. He's pointing out that it doesn't matter the job that you do, you may do a great job, but somebody else is gonna have to do it again. Right? Every week when you mow your grass, what are you thinking? Well, I hope this lasts until next week because you're going to be there again. Everything under the sun is going to need to be done again. Do a great job building a building. Doesn't matter. In 100 years, probably going to fall apart. There's nothing that you can look at and step back and say, that is eternal. That is done. Never have to mess with that again. But God has given us this view He's given us work, but our, but our hope is not to be placed in these things. So I want to move and unpack this idea of how is hope produced. We're looking at how vanity is produced. Vanity is produced by hoping in the wrong things. It's misplacing our hope. But hope is produced when we look correctly. And I, I, want, to, I want to unpack this just a little bit, and I want to put the first thing up on the screen for us to wrap our minds around. Hope is the stuff of saviors. Okay, so I'm not even talking about a good hope you could still apply this to the misplaced hope because in general hope is the stuff of saviors we are looking for something or someone to save us that's how we get into these types of situations so I want to ask can you think of a time when your hope was was restored you know maybe you maybe you were in a, in a position in your life and you thought I, I'm done I'm toast if something else doesn't come and save me, something from without, if, 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 if that money doesn't show up, if that job doesn't show up, if that whatever doesn't show up, I'm done. 
I can remember uh, there was a time in which uh, Sarah was finishing up uh, underground and, and I, I was in between jobs and we were so poor. And I took a, I took a bag of beat up bread to work on my beat up 1991 for, uh, Toyota pickup truck and a, and a jar of peanut butter and some honey that was all crystallized and it was a real struggle to get it out every day. And I remember sitting in my little truck downtown 12th and Main and uh, just thinking, man, I hope, I hope that my check has enough money on it this week to pay the bills. And, and I just remember just thinking, man, if only I could get a job that paid more. You're just, you're just, you're just, look, you're just looking for that. You're, if I could just get a little something else. And then that little check comes in and you're like, okay. I mean, you're thankful, but you're still like, you're hoping for something else. But the point is, is that, that in that moment, I can remember that first check when I got it. It was, it was less than $200, but that was hope. Hope was restored. Why? Because we got to eat. Like, literally. And so I want to ask you, can you think of any time where you were in a desperate situation and you were looking for something, you were hoping in something, something from without had to come in and rescue you from your situation? Recognize that any one of those things you can bring to your mind, that's an example of hope being the stuff of saviors. You're hoping in something to save you from something. And I wrote down a couple of things that I think are related to this. We look to a better future. That's the hope stuff. We look for an end in suffering. We look for some freedom. All of this, this is the essence of hope, and I think it's also the essence of saviors. When we're looking for someone to come free us from some certain slavery, that's the hope of saviors. That's stuff saviors are made out of. If we're looking for an end of suffering, once again, that's the type of stuff saviors are made out of. But also hope, it is consequential and it has meaning. And, 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 and I want to ask you, what are you hoping in? What do you believe will give you ultimate satisfaction? Every one of us has something that we are looking at and we're saying, I recognize this as consequential. I recognize this as meaningful. And there may be certain things that you're absolutely right in seeing them as meaningful things. But when we start to look at it, is it an ultimate thing? Is this the thing that we're placing all of our hope in? Ask yourself that. What and what am I hoping? Uh, there's an interesting book, and I've mentioned it before, Andrew DeBlanco, he's a, he's a historian, and he wrote a book, uh, on, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book on the, the history of America, and it says a meditation on hope. And it says in the early times, Americans put their hope in God. In God we trust. We see it. Then you move on and you see that hope was moved away from God and more to national pride. And it was in America we hope. <laughs> in America we trust. But in these last times, today, what we see is in myself. In I, I hope. In I, I trust. So you have to ask, in what do you hope? And, and as Solomon is going through all of these things, he's saying all of this is vanity. All of this is reaching for a vapor. And I believe he's looking at it from that perspective of if you're looking for ultimate satisfaction, if you're looking for an ultimate hope or an ultimate savior in any of these things, you will be frustrated. It will be vanity of vanities to you. Because the thing is, is the things that we accomplish in our life, the steps we're taking today, the dash we're living, you can live that well, and you can live that poorly, that is true. But even if you live it well, 
if there's not an eternal perspective to it, it still means nothing. It means nothing to live a good life. It means nothing to be a good father, a good husband, work really well, earn a lot of money, and not know God, not know Jesus Christ and die. All of that stuff goes away. You can't even hope in that. You can't even hope in your legacy. Even if they erect a statue to you, you won't be there to appreciate it. How many great authors have written and their work meant nothing during their lives, but only after they died did their work get discovered and popularized, and they weren't here to enjoy it? You may be producing things that won't even be something you can take credit for while you're alive. But the point is, is we do have to focus on how we're living. How are we living that dash what do you believe about yourself? What do you believe about your accomplishments? What do you believe about your life? Because there's two extremes. One is you can say, it's all meaningless, and I shouldn't even get out of bed. I should just live on services. I should just, just let other people do it for me because it doesn't really matter in the end. That's one extreme. The other extreme is to say that all of my worth, all of my value, all of my meaning is tied up in my performance. And then you drive so hard trying to earn value through what you accomplish. Those are two hyper-extremes. And the truth is, is whatever you put your self-worth in will control you. If you put your self-worth in a relationship or what someone else thinks of you, they control you now. If you put your self-worth in your education or in your accomplishments in any other area of your life, that stuff will control you. You will be a slave to that because that's where you're determining your worth. That's the stuff of saviors. You're saying, education, please save me from the meaningless life. Please save me from obscurity. Please don't let me be like those others who haven't gotten these degrees. Or you're saying, please save me from all those people who don't make as much money as I make. You're, you're looking at it as a savior. You may even pray to God, God bless me in my work that I might be remembered. Isn't that crazy? But we live like that, why? Because we're hoping in something to give us meaning. We all want to be valuable. We all want to have a purpose in this life. But hope is produced. Hope is the stuff of saviors. But it has consequences, and it does have meaning. But the interesting thing is, true hope is produced in a right view of God. That he is our creator, our provider, our savior, and our beginning and end. That's where hope truly lives. So I want to move there and unpack this last idea, a dash of hope that drives out vanity. I want to put it up on the screen. A life of rightly placed hope is satisfying. A life of rightly placed hope is satisfying. It's striking that right balance. Jesus Christ came to give true life, and he gave us hope. And, and, and you know what the, the job of a preacher? Every preacher is really meant to, it, it, their, our job is to help people rightly place their hope. Because that's when, when you preach the gospel, that's what you're doing. That's literally what you're saying. He's saying, you may hope and trust in all of these other things, but let me tell you, the only thing worth hoping and trusting in is the work of Jesus Christ. You get from here to here. Here's hopelessness and meaningless. And here's the only true ultimate satisfaction and meaning. Jesus Christ. Knowing him and being known by him. And if you don't understand that, that's okay because that's what the scripture says is that sometimes this stuff is, is, is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
across as foolishness to those who are perishing. But when you've tasted, you recognize that that's exactly what hope does. It drives out vanity because a life of rightly placed hope is satisfying. Because what it enables you to do is it enables you to look at your life from an eternal perspective and say, you know what? God has placed me here right now in this time for a purpose. It's not meaningless. There is a purpose. There is a point to me being here right now. What is it not? It's not for me. It's not for me to collect all the trinkets and things, as many of them as I can, so that I win this race of, 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 of uh, collection, you know, collecting things. It's not to earn the most money that I ever possibly could, so that when I die, I'm recognized as the richest person who's ever lived. That's not the point that God puts you on this earth for. He puts you on this earth to do good work that he prepared for you in advance to do. For whose glory? For his glory. Not yours, not mine. So when you start to say, I have no hope, my life is meaningless, what you've actually done is you've started to look at yourself a little bit too much. You start to look at it and say, what am I doing that's bringing value to myself? And the right question is, who am I? And who am I hoping in? Because if you're hoping in yourself, that is a case in point for the need of the gospel. Because when you're hoping in yourself, you will be let down. That's the whole point of the gospel, is that we have someone else who is better to hope in, who is more satisfying to hope in, and that's Jesus Christ. I wish I had more time to unpack that idea, but I think this is the point of Solomon. Solomon the preacher tells us that misplaced hope is vanity. And it, you know, I, I love this, this idea that when we start to place hope correctly, it frees us up, it relaxes us, it gives us the ability to step back from situations and see them for what they are. When you lose your job, it's not the end of the world. When you lose that relationship, it's not the end of the world. Maybe even you lose a child, it's not the end of the world. I'll tell you what, sometimes God lets that stuff into your life to show you that it's not the end of the world. I can tell you, I can tell you personal story after personal story of, of how this is fleshed out in our lives, but I can tell you even that last one, I'm not speaking as, as, if, as if I'm insensitive to that. There's been many days when I look at God and I think, if you really love me, why are you letting this happen to me? But at the end of it, my hope is not in my children. My hope is not in whether or not any of this goes a certain way. My hope is in him, <laughs> and he's all wise. But not only that, he's good, and he has my good in mind. So who do I hope in? I don't hope in me. I don't hope in my circumstances. I don't hope in my accomplishments. I don't hope in my good name. I don't hope in my education. I don't hope in my bank account. I hope in him, in my creator, who has given me this life for a purpose, who's given me the skills and talent and the time to do the work that he's prepared in advance for me to do, not for me, but the good for others, because God is glorified in that. So when you don't do the job you're supposed to do, shame on you, because God actually put you here for a purpose, to bless others, and he gets blessed from that. When you serve the church, or you serve the poor, when you serve a family member, when you serve your enemy, God gets blessed from that. He loves that. There's meaning in that.
because we're not hoping in ourselves. And I want to put one last thing on the screen and we'll be done. You know, this idea, if we live this way, we literally can say, come what may. Um, and I love even, even this idea that from the pilgrims, the, in the Mayflower Compact, if you ever get a chance to read it, take, take a look at it. But one of the things they wrote, it says, even if we are mere stepping stones, even if we are mere stepping stones, they were all about the furthering of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, even if it meant that they died. If they were mere stepping stones for the furthering of the kingdom of God, if we look at this, if we see this, here that's where we can find our hope in being known and known by Christ. All else is lost compared to knowing him. And here we are in Ecclesiastes, but I want to fast forward because that's exactly the point that Paul would make many years later that is still relevant in this context. That there is no ultimate meaning to be found here in anything that we could ever produce, accomplish, or be known for. But it's more important to be known by Christ because that's the only thing that's going to transcend into eternity. Not your good works, not your accomplishments, not your money, not your house. None of these other things are going to transfer to eternity. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful that you've given us your word and even the, the book of Ecclesiastes, that, it, that, that if we stop it at chapter one, we see it as a depressing thing. But I pray, God, that you let it remind us that the reason why we are not satisfied here is because we were never meant to be satisfied here. It doesn't mean that there is no satisfaction to be found. It means that there is satisfaction to be found in eternity with you. So may we see every life circumstance in light of this truth, Father. That you've given us this life, you've given us this time to do the work that you prepared for us in advance to do, that we ought to be obedient and walk in them because you're glorified in that. And at the same time, we step back and we say, come what may, because my hope is not ultimately found in the outcome of any specific circumstance. So Father, I pray that you help us to see that it's true when we are facing true trials, true pain, true suffering, true loss, that we can step back and say that there is someone who knows, someone who cares, and someone who has a plan who will set all things right in the end. And let this be the thing that we remember, Father, as we look forward to the end of Ecclesiastes, which says, for here is the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will reveal and call into judgment all of our deeds even the things that are done in secret may we live with that in our hearts that our goal that our aim is to fear you and to obey you to fear you not as someone who wishes to do us harm but to fear you as someone worthy of our absolute respect love 
So, Father, I pray this morning that you speak through your Holy Spirit. That if there's any here today that needs to be comforted, that they may be comforted by the Holy Spirit in their trials today. If there's any here today that just feels like their life is hopeless, that their life is meaningless, that they've messed up everything. God, I pray that you send the Holy Spirit to comfort their hearts, to let them know that it's not about their performance. That even the good things that we've done will pass away. And all of the evil that we have done will pass away as well. And for those who are known by Christ, we are forgiven of all. Through his sanctifying, redeeming blood that purifies us and reconciles us to God. Speak to our hearts this time as we continue to worship you, Father. In Jesus' name.